The Lucienne Twins, from No Sleep on Reddit, by Leo Da Vinci. I will never forget the Lucienne Twins. Even after 10 years, they are still fresh in my memory. Too fresh. It was my first year of teaching when they were in my class. My fresh college diploma was framed on my desk, and I had placed a signed picture of my favorite professor, now deceased, on the wall behind me. In cursive, it read, To Mary, my brightest, that you may teach the world. I watched over my kindergarten class as if they were my own children, but the Lucianne twins were my favorite. There was Abigail, the blonde with a minuscule nose, and Bridget, shorter with brunette hair. Miss Mary, Abigail would start, tugging on my dress before Bridget continued. We were wondering, Abigail would take over, if we could go to the sticker box? Bridget would now speak, and take a star? And of course, there was no way I could say no to the couple. They were irresistible, from their broken sentences to the heart-shaped lockets they wore that were embossed with their names. I could never imagine something happening to them. But fate follows no rules, and something did. Word about the car crash spread around the school faster than the ambulance could reach the hospital. It had been at an intersection where a pickup truck had slammed into the side of their compact car on their Friday morning commute. The driver had still been drunk from the night before. The gas tank was immediately ruptured, spewing the right side of the car with fuel and flames licked up through the back seat. Bridget was strapped into a car seat above them and rumor was that Abigail watched her twin burn alive. When the firemen freed Abigail, she threw herself onto the still smoldering bones of Bridget, and her sister's red-hot locket branded itself into her earlobe. The body of her single mother survived, but the toll of the lost daughter sickened her soul. Abigail returned to class two weeks later. The hair on the right side of her head was singed and steadily grew back, though its color was darker. A doctor's inspection revealed nothing else wrong with her except a deafness in her right ear. Hush voices in the school hallways whispered, her eardrum imploded by the sheer loudness of her sister's dying screams. But most unnerving was her sister's name, scarred into the lobe of her deaf ear and surrounded by the outline of a heart-shaped locket. From then on, no student would sit on the right side of Abigail, and I had to rearrange the seating charts to place her next to the wall. Abigail seemed content there, in an island of isolation. Before her sister died, they rarely conversed with the other students, and now was no different. In social time, I would hear Abigail talking to the wall in incoherent sentences. Abigail, honey, what are you saying? I asked a week after she returned. Oh, Miss Mary, she said, I'm... Then she would pause, waiting. And then we thought... Another pause, silence. And we can, can't we? Sure you can, honey, I replied, though the exchange made my hair stand on end. She smiled again and cocked her right ear, the deaf one, to the wall, pausing again, then speaking. She said yes! Then the gibberish continued and the closing bell rang. It wasn't until I drove halfway home that I realized the gaps in Abigail's conversation were where Bridget should be speaking. 
Months passed, and Abigail became even more of an outcast in the class. The kindergartners came to forget the disaster, and some students even began bullying Abigail. I revised the seating chart again and moved her close to my desk. Miss Mary, clamored Abigail one day, pulling my dress. She stumbled, and I reached to catch her, but she fell against my professor's portrait on the wall, shattering the protective glass. She picked up the remains, the glass biting deep into her soft palms. She didn't notice. I'm sorry, Miss Mary, she said, and her voice changed. We didn't mean to break. Again, a pitch change. Your picture. I stopped. It was her first complete sentence since the crash. It's okay, I said, holding her. Blood from her hands dripped onto me, but it felt cold, and I rushed to bandage it. I'm sure you will teach the world one day, Miss Mary, she said, her voice continuing the inflections. My heart froze as I read the note on the portrait for the thousandth time. Abigail couldn't read cursive. How did you know that? I asked. Bridget told me she talks to him now, she said, curling her streak of darker hair around her finger. That's not all she tells me. She tells me terrible things sometimes, and I can't stop hearing her. Then she started crying and noticed the glass embedded deep in her hands. She never stops. Her voice elevated to a yell. When I took the picture back, her sentences became broken again, and I moved her on the seating chart away from my desk. Over time, the other students realized Abigail's reaction to old objects. They'd bring her in things they found in the attic, artifacts their grandparents owned, and watched as she cocked her right ear and her sentences became whole or broken when she held them. It became a game to them, listening to the stories she made up. But the effect took an obvious toll on her, and she soon started wearing gloves, even in the dead heat of summer. But one boy, larger than the others, a brute known for his bullying, liked the look on Abigail's face as they pushed artifacts into her squirming palms. He was the quickest to see the fear that she felt when they once gave her an old bullet shell and ran home afterwards to find an old box in his basement his parents forbade him to open. Inside was his great-grandfather's Nazi uniform, a warden at a concentration camp, and he twisted off one of the buttons. The next day, he found Abigail on the playground and pinned her against the chain-link fence. He ripped the gloves off and forced the button into her hand, tightly closing her fingers about it. When she began screaming, he only laughed and closed the fist tighter. I reached them too late. When I pulled the boy off, she was sobbing uncontrollably, both her hands locked into fists. She dropped the button like it was searing hot, but refused to open the other fist until the paramedics arrived and knocked her out with anesthesia. Only then could they pull her severed right ear out, torn off by her bloody fingernails, with Bridget still written on the lobe. But most terrifying of all was when she screamed. I could hear two voices screaming. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. I'm 
I'm Michael Tatum, and this <laughs> is Cool Intentions. <laughs> I hated that story so much. Oh, it's so creepy. I mean, it's good. It's a very it good so story, creepy. but I hated it. I it's, loved it. I hated it. I, I don't know how I feel about it's, it. Uh, yeah. So that, that was, of course, from No Sleep uh, on Reddit. Yeah. We decided to it's good, it's good. give it a twin spin today. <laughs> twin spin. Twin spin. Um, because of our topic. Because of our topic. Which, how would you describe our topic, Jamie? Like, uh, creepy twin stories? No, it's cre- not creepy that. Twi- uh, it, it's, um... It's, it's just it's, twins. It's dealing with twins. It's dealing with twins. And the uncanniness of twins. Yes. Uh, and so here's here's what happened. <laughs> I found out that Elvis had a twin. I'm surprised you didn't know that. I didn't know that yeah. and that he and it and he died at birth. Yeah. And I didn't know that and I asked Michael if he knew it because I thought it would be a good story yeah, to I'm talk like, oh, about. Yeah, yeah, I know but that then, story. For those who don't know, Michael also had a twin who died at birth. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like you should do it and and Michael said it's too like, close. It's like, too no. close. <laughs> you like, do no, you, you do, do that story. I'll just do creepy twins. And I was like, all right. And so it was my mistake. I should never agree to it. I, I should know. have done the Elvis one because my my topic, which I'll, we'll start in here in a little bit, it's like really a downer. Yeah, <laughs> it's really sad, but it's good. It's a good, good, compelling story. I hope they never make a movie out of it because right. I would be so. It would seem so disrespectful to make a movie out of it. But right. it's got all the. All the makings of of a good movie, right. like a really good movie. But uh, same with Elvis's story. Yeah, I sure, mean, especially because sure. you could get the ghost aspect in there. I but will we'll say, get and into I, it. I will, we'll talk about that. You know, as as everything kind of unfolds. But I will say, at least Elvis had a lot of good things happen to him. Well, he did. The the, the people I'm going to talk about had fucking nothing right. good. Yeah, nothing good. And so I'm not saying that. You know Elvis's right. experience of his of his of, of being a surviving twin, which is the the term, right? Um, what wasn't something that haunted him, but this, oof, God. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I should we'll get probably, into it in a minute. Uh, so our title today, because of the subject matter, is split in two, which comes from a book by Melody Ramone called After Forever Ends, and the full quote is: "Mom used to say we were the same soul split in two, and walking around on four legs seems unnatural, being born together and then dying apart." Ooh. Yeah. I've never read that book. I need yeah. to read it. Yeah. Oof. It was a little romantical. That's very romantic. A little bit of romance in there. Um, a lot of twins do feel like, like you know, one half of, of one person. Yeah. Um, especially identical twins. Fraternal right. twins, perhaps less so. Right. Uh, in my experience. But my identical twins, I, I know quite a few identical twins. And... It's a how good are you at telling twins apart if they're really if they really really do resemble each other? Not good. Yeah, no. I'm excellent at it. I you, can almost always tell twins apart after yeah. just talking with them for like a minute. Yeah, there's just I don't know why I just can't. And and other twins can do the same thing. Yeah. They they know they can like well, oh I you're this you're that. I've never been super close hmm. to to twins. Like they never had friends that were twins that hmm. I was super close to or anything. Twin friend. Yeah, Jean Luc did growing up. He was when he was little. He had. Uh, uh, twin, twin boys. Hmm. But every time, everybody, I think that I don't know enough twins that anytime there are twins, I know them as the twins. That's, that's, <laughs> They're the only ones I know. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, if you talk to twins about that, many of them feel that like society kind of puts pressure on them to be the same person. Right. And it can create a lot of tension in a twin relationship because yeah. they feel like, no, I want to be my own person. And of course, parents have twins and, and often think it's cute. So they dress them up in the same mm-hmm. clothes and everything. And, and, um, 
twins can run into developmental problems because they tend to be so close to each other that they don't, right. they, don't uh, they don't become so yeah they, they don't socialize quite so readily as other people um that is it's not across the board but but it, it does happen and it's kind of weird it, it can run into all twins have to deal with things most of us don't in term during their during their um and the sort of developmental struggles, the struggles to individuation, which everyone goes through, which is the, the psychological term for becoming a person and integrating, right. you know, all the different facets of who you are into into something like a workable whole, which is the business of adulthood, really. Right. Twins have a much harder time because they're like, ah, oh, I'm this, but I also have a responsibility to my other half. Like, it's, right. it's different than other siblings where you just kind of go, cool, we're siblings and we have a history together. It's like, nah, you're my other person. And so it's... Right. Well, and I think... It puts a lot of psychological pressure similar. on one. For children, usually that if there's two girls, two boys or whatever, mm -hmm. because a lot of times they get raised in the same room. Oh, yeah. You know, bathe together. It's almost if they're close enough in age, it's a twin like thing where things are done together. Yep. And yep. Um, so it can be similar without being exactly the same thing. So I think some people know what that is, especially, you know, the wearing the same clothes mm -hmm. or having to share a room and being given the same exact, you know, styles and it's like they're different people with different likes and yeah dislikes and yeah. so it's you know that's hard with because the girls are three years apart that's hard with them making sure they yeah. get their own things well i think sometimes with twins too it's like um they do have similar tastes and yes. similar personality traits but they they grow to resent themselves because they don't like looking like someone else they like they try to you know often they'll make they'll struggle to to individuate by turning against what they like because right. they're like I don't I don't want to like this thing because it 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 draws comparison to my twin and yeah. I don't like that and so they it ends up being really interesting I mean most twins grow up pretty close mm -hmm. but there's there's a there's a layer of tension there that most of us are not aware of it's not harmonious as, yeah. as we'll hear about in my story but um, people thought my older brother and I were twins growing up. How close? And you're, he's older 18, than... 18, 20 months. Oh, wow. We're pretty so you, close. Pretty close. Yeah. Like, we're wow, close. so your parents immediately got busy again after you... Right. <laughs> after he was born. Yeah. We weren't We weren't <laughs> quite as close as Irish twins, but we were pretty close together. And so... Uh, Irish twins. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, it was pretty close. So people thought that we were mm. growing up, but we were not at all. Yeah, I, I my brother and I, my my surviving brother is is not, and we are not close in age at all. He's almost right. a decade older than me. Yeah, and we didn't eat, so we didn't really even grow up together much because by yeah. the time I was old enough to like develop and form memories of my own, like he was already kind of in school, in right. high school, so he wasn't at home as much. And then he was off to college, and so I don't really. He was around, but not not a lot right um but uh, it's funny i look back at pictures of us as, as little kids and like you know my parents like you know we're together all the time as kids but i have no memory of it because i was so little right but yeah but i remember but that's uh, so jean-luc is 11 years younger than me mm. and i think that's the difference from being growing up in society as a boy versus growing up in society as a girl mm. at 11 years old to have a baby it was like oh my god this is the best baby doll ever because <laughs> it's real yeah. and so <laughs> I was very involved with with the Jean-Luc, you know, taking care of him and yeah. all of that stuff. And then, and so we're very, very close yeah. now. But, still, but still. yeah, let's get into your story. We'll have announcements yeah. later. Oh, you want to make the announcements? Yeah, we'll make, we have announcements later. So okay, we do stay, have announcements later. So, um, yeah, so uh, twins are fascinating. Now, I, so in coming to my, um, 
uh, subject. I'd known about the subject for a long time. I read a, I read the book that a lot of this comes from uh, years ago and was really fascinated by it. I, if it's about twins, I tend to kind of gravitate toward it because the subject of twins just, just fascinates me. Obviously, yeah. I mean, I think it fascinates everyone, but I, I certainly am like have a special kind of. There's a there's a special place in my heart for anyone who is a twin, right? Um, and kind of the struggles because I can only imagine. I, I some sometimes when I read this, I mean, I know like I, I'm technically a surviving twin, even though it seems weird because I have no memory of my brother right. at all, um, uh, except as an imaginary friend when, right. growing up. You're, and we'll get into this later. You're yeah. a twinless twin. Twinless. That's the word. I yes. couldn't. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's sometimes, man, reading this story made me think, man, I dodged a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel and like I I'm going to feel, not, I'm I'm feel like, the same way. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, it's, but it's really, it's not a story. Um, it's about twins, but honestly, their being twins was not the issue. It was really a societal issue. And so right. there's a lot of dark subject matter here. And so fair warning, this is a very, very sad story. And um, it has half a good ending. Oh, great. Uh, I so, feel like that's going to be one twin because... Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, just just full disclosure. Um, not everyone gets out of this one alive. So... Well, no one um, gets out of it alive. <laughs> grand scheme. I will, by God. <laughs> um, and probably not by him. Uh, anyway, so this is uh, about the silent twins, the so-called silent twins. It's uh, June and Jennifer Gibbons who grew up in Wales in mm -hmm. the 60s, 70s. Or in the, excuse me, in the... Um, uh, 70s and 80s okay. and uh, their story which is really fucked up the, the my sources were the silent twins a novel or not a novel but a non-fiction book by marjorie wallace who was a reporter that knew the girls rather well uh the bbc documentary without my shadow which was made in association with in association i can talk with aka pictures and an interview with marjorie wallace on npr's snap judgment okay. also wikipedia and your usual sources um so let's just get right into it <clears throat> To set, set the stage of the story, um, desperate to rebuild in the wake of World War II, Britain encouraged mass immigration from the far-flung colonies of its former empire, hoping to give the waning labor market a much-needed shot in the arm. Mm -hmm. I mean, after the Blitzkrieg and all that, like, London need rebuilding. I mean, it was, it cannot be stressed how, even though technically they were one of the winners of right. <laughs> World War II, they, the country was actually devastated. Uh, so citizens of the West Indies, which is, uh, it, it's the sort of archipelago of islands, including the Caribbean, mm -hmm. that were that were once part of the British Empire. Um, these citizens were attracted by prospects far exceeding those of their native soil, of course. And the offer of full citizenship made possible by the British Nationality Act of 1948, which was specifically uh, made, passed into law in order to encourage immigration. Um, immigrants who availed themselves of the author became of the offer became known as the Windrush Generation, named for the ship that brought the first wave of immigrants uh, of uh, generation to Tilbury Port on June 22nd of 1948. Indeed, in many ways, the arrival of the HMS Windrush marked the birth of modern Britain. The image of migrants filing down its gangplank came to symbolize the country's shift towards more multi multiculturalism. <laughs> back uh, then. Back then. Yeah, it's which was not. It, well, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. we'll see that there hasn't been. Um, such a surplus of jobs uh, were there in post-war Britain that industries like the British Rail and the National Health Service could recruit almost exclusively uh, from Jamaica and Barbados without inadvertently stoking anti-immigrant sentiment. At least that was the official line. 
In reality, African-Caribbean immigrants met with unmitigated scorn and intolerance from the predominantly white British working class. They found private employment and housing denied to them on the basis of race. Trade unions refused to represent them. A great many pubs, dance halls, and churches barred people of color from entering, and this was well into the 60s. Housing was hard to come by as it was after the German Blitzkrieg that nearly reduced London to rubble. With the influx, uh, with the influx of foreigners in the decades to follow, the situation became, uh, for all intents and purposes, unsustainable. Tensions were so high that race riots erupted in London, Birmingham, and Nottingham almost daily. Attacks on people of color by white youths uh, known as Teddy Boys in Notting Hill around 1958 gave rise to the now rather popular annual Notting Hill Carnival, but that was first came in being... Um, in an effort to kind of stoke solidarity among immigrants and people who'd been victimized by, by uh, racial intolerance. Historian Winston James argues that racism made the shared Caribbean identity among immigrants who came from a range of different islands and class mm -hmm. backgrounds, uh, but still bonded together in, in England as one people, uh, became a matter of survival for them. Right. So it's it And kind that's of, just the fucking weather change. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a big difference. Yeah. And as so as daughters of Windrush immigrants, identical twins June and Jennifer Gibbons knew all too well the face of bigotry. Born April 11th, 1963. That's my mom's birthday. Really? Not to the year, but oh. she's April 11th. Um, Born April 11th, 1963, to Barbados immigrants, the silent twins, as they would later be called, were bullied so mercilessly in school for the color of their skin, among other things, as we'll see, that administrators allowed them to leave an hour early each day to give them kind of a head start on their tormentors. Oh, wow. Now, Audrey Gibbons and his wife, Gloria, came to the UK from, from Barbados in 1960 as part of the Windrush generation. Aubrey was a technician in the Royal Air Force. Accordingly, he and Gloria were never in one place for very long. When Providence blessed their stint in Yemen with the arrival of healthy twin baby girls, the couple was elated. June would later remember her and Jennifer's early years as happy. We had each other, she said. We didn't need anybody else, which was just as well. The girls were late to talk and had a pronounced speech impediment, making them difficult for adults to understand. Gloria, their mother, was at pains to decipher their meaning and grew anxious that this didn't bode well for them in the future. Their shyness troubled her. Self-conscious about not being understood, June and Jennifer would withdraw, speaking only to each other in a language completely unique to them, comprised of knowing glances, furtive gestures, and later bits and pieces of rapidly spoken uh, Bahan Creole, which mm. is a combination of several different languages. It's kind of a, uh, not a pidgin, that's not the word for it. It's a, uh, it's kind of a makeshift language. It's a, mm. sort of a trade language among different islands in the okay. Caribbean. In 1974, the family relocated to an RAF estate in Harverford, West Wales, a working-class backwater where June and Jennifer were literally the only children of color in their secondary school. Jeez. June and Jennifer shared a special bond, as identical twins often do. Inseparable, they rarely spoke to anyone save each other and their sister, Rosie, who was a little younger. As life at school grew more and more miserable, their personal language grew increasingly insular. Rose, or Rosie, rather, often had to interpret their odd vocalizations for the benefit of others. Other children were so incensed by the twins' reluctance to speak uh, that they tormented them endlessly, chanting racial slurs on the playground and physically attacking them any chance they got. So it's many 
many. They're the worst. They're fucking savages. So many of their classmates engaged in this cruel behavior that the school administrators kind of threw their hands up in the air and like, well, we can't punish all of them. So all I can really do is be like, hey, girls, you're going to get to leave school an hour early every day. Mm. Just so, you know, you're out of here. You're kind of out of harm's way before the other, before we let out all these little fucking savages. Yeah. Um, what a, what a plan. Yeah. Um, now, despite being... Well, we can't hold these white children responsible for their There's actions. just too many of them, you know. Isn't that the fucking story? Uh, now, despite being blessed with an above-average intelligence, which would show itself later, uh, the twins refused to read or write in class. When Dr. John Reese administered vaccinations on site at the school one year, he was deeply off-put by the girls' aloofness toward him. Caught off guard seeing two little black girls in an otherwise all-white school, Reese tried to engage them in conversation, but uh, but recoiled at their complete refusal to, to speak or make eye contact. They were totally expressionless, expressionless, he recalls. Thirteen-year-olds were tearing all over the place, and here you had these two little girls, one walking behind the other, heads down like they were in some kind of chain gang. I'd never come across something like this before. Um... A child psychiatrist diagnosed them with selective mutism. Thus began a slew of well-meaning, albeit ineffective, therapy sessions attempting to persuade the girls to open up and interact with others. The county secondary school was unequipped to deal with children like June and Jennifer, so uh, they were transferred at age 14 to the Eastgate Center for Special Education. Upon getting to know her new charges, Eastgate teacher Kathy Arthur, who in interview, I must confess, looks seem, comes across as a rather compassionate individual, yeah. felt that the secondary school's assessment of the twins had been hasty, if not outright ignorant. The Gibbons twins... They just wanted them out. Mm-hmm. They probably just wanted them out of the school. Sure. Um, the Gibbons twins, she'd been told, were negative, insubordinate, and totally incapable of speaking English. Yet, when Kathy... Uh, played back secret recordings made of the girls when they were alone. She found the language they spoke uh, to one another was English, just highly sped up. Oh. Um, the girls rarely spoke to anyone face to face, but they would occasionally reply to written instructions or machines that were mm. like, can you say this? Not like speak in spells, but they used to have a series of machines that you could run like um, cards through that would like read instructions to you or kind of converse with you in a very limited capacity. And the girls could interact with that pretty well. Um, child psychiatrist Tim Thomas, who was their psychiatrist for years and years and years, and a very nice guy, he ran a slew of competency tests and discovered that the girls operated at rather different cognitive levels from one another. They also displayed marked differences in personality. Yet, Thomas theorized, to cope with the impact of the incessant bullying they experienced at school, June and Jennifer kind of dissolved themselves into the role expected of them as twins. Right. And one specialist hit on the notion of having them separated, thinking this would encourage independence and allow each girl to come into her own as a fully-fledged individual. Yet, when packed off to different boarding schools for a time, the girls became catatonically withdrawn. Yeah. I mean, they would not move, they would not speak, they would not make eye contact, they had to be force-fed. Um, I mean, wow. and these are these are fourteen and these are fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-old girls. I mean, this this is the period yeah. of time. So these were teenagers. These aren't just children right. anymore. I mean, they are, were children, but I mean, they are should. It's a point in their life where they should be utterly self-sufficient. Yeah. But whenever Meanwhile, they were poor away, Rosie's in that bully school still, right? <sighs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not much of information on Rosie. On Rosie I mean, she that, yeah. she yeah. Poor She's not thing. the twin. Yeah, uh, and they had they had I think five siblings total. Okay. 
Uh, so a rather large family. Now, the girls were reunited at home for fear their separation would just do more damage, and June and Jennifer spent the next several years closed off in their bedroom, writing and performing elaborate plays for Rosie. These plays, That's which fun. were kind of sprawling, soap opera-like, convoluted, and often enacted with dolls, were, re were recorded on tape and given as gifts. And listening to them, which is really extraordinary, you'd be shocked to know that the voices doing all these little characters were that these were these girls that would never ever never ever talk. speak i mean they they're so articulate um yeah. there there is a evidence of a speech impediment like a little kind of a lateral lisp i guess if, mm -hmm. if that's the term and um but other than that like they just they you would never know they sound like perfectly not just perfectly normal little girls but talented little girls yeah um but it would only come out in these plays that they would do only for rosie everyone else had to listen to them on these little audio tapes they would make which is kind of sweet when you think yeah. about it but it's just like man they were so paralyzed by their inability to so to, to, communicate. To, to communicate with other people um that you know just how much the, i mean what a what a loss for the world right you know that these girls weren't given a chance um and people tried people tried but they were such a i think the bullying that got them at such an early age that was a, a direct direct corollary to racism fucking ruthless goddamn nonsensical racism in this country uh in in england which is, of course it's everywhere right um just damaged them beyond salvageability psychologically which is fucking sad uh just fucking awful anyway uh so um when rosie grew old enough to move into her own room and she finally mm -hmm. did the twins took it as a sign of betrayal and they stopped oh. speaking even to her and after that the whole family was cut off wow. psychiatrists were still trying to reach the twins at this point dr thomas hit on the idea of separating the girls again um sending them like to various for various stints at eastgate like one would go to eastgate and one would stay home for a yeah. while and they'd kind of trade off uh so they could still get an education and still submit to testing and 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 uh, counseling uh, but he, the the new sort of wrinkle in it was like, well, you girl, I want you girls to decide which one of you goes, mm. um, just to kind of encourage, you know, independence right. between the two of them and make them feel like they were had agency, uh, which is a good idea on the surface of it. But the result gave him a startling insight into the nature of, of this twin's relationship. The girls actually fought bitterly over the decision. June, in fact, he saw June uh, grab Jennifer at one K in one instance, shaking her like violently against the wall and saying, you are Jennifer, goddammit, you are Jennifer, not me. And she screamed over Jeez. and over and again. Now, Jennifer wrote in her journal that June couldn't be her real twin. She was just too different. Somewhere out there, she felt her huh. real twin was hiding. Someone who shared her feelings and opinions exactly. Um, and one day she would find her and reunite. Wow. So the deep psychological tension led to an impasse between the girls. Each kind of grew to despise the other for holding them back. Yet neither of them could really function alone. At 16, the twins returned home and locked themselves away in their bedroom yet again. They watched through binoculars out the window as the world and life passed them by. Attempting to break out of their silence, they purchased a book entitled The Art of Conversation, but found it no help. They simply couldn't break the habit of self-imposed silence. After receiving a pair of diaries for Christmas in 1979, they decided to turn their misery to good use and began writing. 
They completed a mail-order course in creative writing and became, in their way, remarkably proliferate authors. The majority of novels and short stories uh, written during this period are set in Malibu, California, of all places, huh. and detail the exploits of characters with a decidedly eccentric, even criminal, turn of mind. June's novel, entitled Pepsi-Cola Addict, features a teenager <laughs> shunted to reformatory school after a teacher seduces him. There, a sinister guard takes up the theme and attempts to rape the young boy. Um, so convinced were the girls of their novel's literary of the novel's literary merits, they pooled their dis disability checks to have it published by Vanity Press. This was, alas, the only novel to see print. Jennifer's uh, efforts, the pugilist, it's called, didn't pass muster. It involves the spirit of a vengeful dog possessing the body of a young girl whose father used the dog's heart to save her. June's next outing was a novel called Discomania, in which the atmosphere of a local nightclub transforms patrons into homicidal maniacs. I mean, they sound pretty good. <laughs> I'd read these. I'd read these stories. Um, they totally be. They totally submit to the show if they were. <laughs> Absolutely, they would. <laughs> and we would read the hell out of them. Um, as their teen years wore on, boys began taking an interest. Often, Jennifer and June found themselves rivals for the same boys' affections. This, of course, increased the friction between them. The twins fell to alcohol and drugs to cope. Emboldened, they would hang out on the streets at night, quote, looking for trouble, June recalls. Petty <laughs> vandalism became a pastime. Soon enough, it was arson. The girls would raise no less than three buildings to the ground before last being caught by authorities. What? June seemed always to be the instigator, lacking a strong enough personality to resist. Jennifer always went along. Dear Diary, wrote June in the winter of 1981, my nature has turned to crime. I'm a labeled thief, but haven't I always been one? All this week, I've been wanting to burn down the tractor store in Snowdrop Lane. I burned it down today, with the help of Jennifer, of course. The greatest moment of my life. Wow. We opened all the cans of petrol and spread it everywhere. Can you believe I'm the arsonist of Harvard West? Yes, I am. I'm going to burn down the whole damn town. Firemen were everywhere trying to smash a window to get in. All the while, my lovely, glorious fire was licking its way through the roof, and the thick smoke filled the night sky. A picture that will live in my mind forever. I know the Lord will forgive me. It's been a hard, painful year. Don't I deserve to express my distress? The police are looking Whoa. for an arsonist. Well, of course they are. She lives right here in Fursey Park. What? This diary entry would kind of cinch their fate. In 1982, at the tender age of 19, June and Jennifer were arrested on suspicion of arson, pled guilty, and were committed to Broadmoor Hospital as schizophrenics. Within months, their sentence was lengthened indefinitely under the Mental Health Act of 1983, which basically allowed prosecutors to be like, yeah, they're crazy, let's just, then why put a cap on the sentence? Just keep right. them in there until they're better, however long that takes. Yeah. Uh, it was fucking, it was just a horrible, horrible excuse under Margaret Thatcher to just like, just, ah, just, you know, lock the lock the people we don't know how to deal with, just yeah. away, let them We don't away. want them, let's put them somewhere. The girls Jeez. remained incarcerated very under- 19, or 1700s of her. Oh shit, 1600s. right. How little progress we've made. Um, the girls remained incarcerated under tight security for the next 11 years. June blamed the system on what followed. Juvenile delinquents get two years, she said in an interview to Hilton Owls for New York for the New Yorker in 2000. We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the Queen asking her to help us get us out, but we were trapped. Forced a steady diet of antipsychotics, the girls found it impossible to keep their wits about them, let alone um, exercising anything like creative, uh, their creative spark. The girls often fought violently and had to be separated, after which they would both grow catatonic again. Trapped in a cruel cycle of codependence and mutual hatred, the twins spoke with no one but each other. They reluctantly allowed lawyers and doctors assigned to their case to communicate with them via an in-house telephone, but even then, the back and forths were negligible. 
for all intents and purposes, the outside world barely registered to them. In her diary, June wrote, We talked to the doctor about life. Jennifer told him about how she hears voices, sees visions, and wants to kill me. I told him how sensitive I am, how I pick up people's moods, have dreams and premonitions. He's puzzled by our non-communication with our parents. I haven't spoken to either of them since the beginning of my teenage years. Jennifer is more withdrawn than me. She needs more help. I told him I would like to kill her. I would strangle her. I told him of how we tried to drown each other in the river once. I said that only one of us should have been born. Life would have been so much smoother. Wow. Jennifer developed something called tardative dyskinesia, a neurological disease that causes sufferers to repeat random movements incessantly and involuntarily. Mm. Doctors adjusted the dosages enough to let the girls keep a diary and uh, sing in the hospital choir. Alas, their passion for the written words seemed to vanish, though their diary entries were copious over these years. Never again would they try to write a piece of fiction. Another entry from June's diary goes as follows. We are forgotten, never to be seen again. What sort of day will it be when I walk free? What kind of weather? How old will I be? Jennifer and I are two twins of history. Life will go on outside, passing away. Memories of our trial, our case. Where are we now, they will say. What do we look like now? And One day we'll quietly be secretly released. Mature women. All things must end. New things begin. Their sad plight achieved widespread public attention when journalist Marjorie Wallace did a story on them for the Sunday Times. Wallace would go on to write the book The Silent Twins after her relationship with the girls over a period of several years. In an interview with NPR, Wallace recalls her first encounter with June and Jennifer in the Broadmoor visitor room. The twins were brought in and that was the most extraordinary moment. First of all, Two of the prison wardens took one twin in, just leaning like a plank or like a coffin, really, on their shoulders, and they just got her in, and she sat down, and her eyes were downcast. She didn't move, her hands just hanging by her side. And then the second twin came in, and the same thing happened, and they just sat there. And then suddenly I said, do you know, June and Jennifer, I've read some of your writings? And suddenly I saw a little <laughs> flicker in June's eyes. She started to look up, and there was a little twitching out of her lips, and with great difficulty she got out the words, did you like them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. According to Wallace, the girls had a long-standing agreement that if one died, the other must begin to speak and live a normal life. During their time in Broadmoor, they began to believe one of them had to die for the other to truly live, and after much discussion, Jennifer agreed to sacrifice herself. In March 1993, the twins were permitted a transfer from Broadmoor to Coswell Clinic in Wales, where security was relaxed and the atmosphere more conducive to healing. This was the first step on their road to freedom. Upon arrival, however, Jennifer was unconscious and cannot be woken up. She was taken to the hospital where she died soon after of acute uh, myocarditis, a sudden inflammation of the heart. It's a rare disorder and seldom fatal. No evidence of drugs wow. or poison came out from the autopsy. Her what? death is a mystery. At the inquest, June revealed that Jennifer had been acting strangely the day before their transfer. She'd been slurring her words and repeatedly asking to lay her head on June's shoulder. She said she was dying. On the trip to Caswell, she had lain in Jennifer's lap with her eyes open, half asleep. On a visit a few days later, Wallace recounted that June was in a strange mood. She said, I'm free at last, liberated, and at last Jennifer has given up her life for me. Wallace remembers her final visit with the girls. We had quite a jolly conversation to begin with, she says. And then suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, Jennifer said, Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. And I sort of laughed. I said, don't be silly. You're 31 years old. You know, you're, you're just about to be freed from Broadmoor. Why are you going to have to die? You're not ill. And she said, because we've decided. At that point, I got very, very frightened because I could see that they meant it. And then they said, we've made a pact. 
Jennifer has got to die because they said the day that they left Broadmoor, the day that they were free from the secure hospital, one of them would have to give up their life to really enable the other to be free. I later found out that they had been quarreling violently about which one of them was going to do it. June kept the jewelry Jennifer had been wearing when she died, as well as her dress. In her diary on March 9th, 1993, June wrote, Today my beloved twin sister died. She is dead. Her heart stopped beating. She will never recognize me. Mom and Dad came to her body. I kissed her stone-colored face. I went hysterical with grief. After June's death, June gave interviews with Harper's Bazaar and The Guardian. By 2008, she was living quietly and independently near her parents in West Wales. Uh, she was no longer monitored by psychiatric services and sought to put the past behind her. A 2016 interview with her sister, Greta, revealed that the family was deeply troubled by the girl's incarceration. She blamed Broadmoor for ruining their lives and for neglecting Jennifer's health. She'd wanted to file a lawsuit against Broadmoor, but Aubrey and Gloria, the parents, refused, saying nothing they could do at this point would ever bring Jennifer back. Better to just let June lead her life. Whoa. So they just decided, and she was like, cool. Yeah. She just That's fucking so... died of this bizarre, not usually fatal heart inflammation that, that there was no, there was never any indication. And I mean, it's quite possible that she had, uh, you know, the thing about it, because they're twins and that only one of them died. Yeah. Would suggest that it's not, if it was some congenital heart defect, the odds of both of them not having it were pretty slim. Right. And, and it's just, it, it's, it's like the, you know, the one girl just willed herself to get sick and die. So mm -hmm. the other. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they on. used something that they couldn't pinpoint. They wouldn't would have had it. access to much. Yeah. They wouldn't have had, it's at a place as tightly secure as Broadmoor, the girls wouldn't have had access to anything that they wouldn't have known to look for an autopsy. Right. So, right. Um, because, but, and they did find, and they found a cause. They found like it, she died of this inflammation of the heart, but there's no reason for that to have killed her. Like, so may, I, it's just weird. It's just it's weird. It's just fucking weird. I, I mean, I think if a person really wants to, they can will themselves to die. Yeah. yeah I mean, especially when you were in that state, you know, when you are so deeply darkly depressed and you've made up your mind that you know that the one good thing you can do for this other person that's mm -hmm. in your life is to die then right. you can will yourself to die well Just, and they both uh, ha seem to have you know some sort of supernatural mm -hmm. gifts i would say you know be it yeah you know what you know like you said they they did but i think being withdrawn Ooh. from society tends to make one really sensitive to um perhaps in a psychic sense, it makes people sensitive to, how, how shall I put this? Being an outsider makes you very, very sensitive to all the things most of us spend all day, every day covering up. Right. Because you're not attracted to all the outward trappings, all right. the, the yeah. charm, the social, the sociability, the talk, the looking small good. chatter, looking good. You're just like, you see through it because you're like, none of those things mean anything to you. Right. So you kind of look past it and see people who they are. That's why traditionally, um, in every society, like shaman and, and you know, medicine men and witches, and they, they've always been outsiders and people yeah, that kind of live right. outside the, the bosom of society, so to speak. Just sad. There's no reason these girls had to live like that. Yeah. None whatsoever. I mean, they were mm. twins and twins have their struggles, as all children do, perhaps a little more acutely because they're twins and they kind of have to fight the expectation of being one person. And like, no, we're, we, we're just... You yeah. know, we're just siblings that happen to have been born at the same time and look alike, but goddammit, we're individuals with our own right. thing. But it, on top of that, the just horrible racism they had to deal with yeah. just so traumatized them that, you know, they're the one coping mechanism they had available to them was to just dissolve themselves into this twinhood, right. which 
you know, wound up being their undoing. They yeah. got to the point where they felt like, well, we can't both live. We're one person. We're supposed to be one person. And right. yet we're, we're divided into that's two. That's how it was and supposed to be the, the whole is, time. You know? so they got this, this idea in their head that, you know, they, that they were a mistake. The thing is, and it's twisted, but in a way they were right because June yeah. became living as a normal. She well, the I same think, issues. I think, well, and I think they were right. I don't think they were right. I, that's how should I put this? Psychologically, I think, they psychologically, were right, I think, but... I think, um, Jennifer's death gave June a reason to get better. Right. Because she now had to live, do the living for both of them. For both of them. Which is yeah. very much a, a surviving twinless twin thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the pressure, like I, I will, you'll get We're into get it into with that. Elvis. Yeah, the pressure absolutely. that, that people that are surviving or a twinless twin feel is incredible. I, I feel it myself in a way that's hard to describe because I can't really, I've always felt like I'm living for two people. Yeah. And so when I, when I fall short of a goal, which I do a lot, <laughs> I'm only human. When I fail myself, I'm failing him too. Oh. And and oh, so it makes God. it so well. It just makes it. I mean, it doesn't make me special. Um, you know, we all feel shitty when when we when we you fail. know fail ourselves. And mm -hmm. but I but it, I guess to me, I also have the thing like it's really it's hard for me to get over. Right. And I obsess over. Um, I think it's also why I get, I, I'm, I'm a nice guy for the most part. You know, I, I, I'm easy. I'm even keel, but man, I hold a grudge. Yeah. I can hold a grudge and I, I, I it's not, I'm not proud of that. And I can also, and I'm easily wounded by certain things. Right. For the most part, I'm pretty like, eh, I'm an adult. I'm mature enough that most things don't bother me. Like someone says something ugly about me. I'm like, eh, okay, I don't fucking care unless right. it's someone that I, that you care about. That I care about. Yeah. Whose opinion I, I, I value. Then I feel, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> then I get <laughs> but I think I've always been um, even more sensitive to things like that, to, to betrayals, because I feel like, you know, you're you're not just fucking with me. You're fucking with someone I love. Right. And, that, and I've been like that all my life. I'm much more, I'm likelier to stand up for the people in my life that I love than for myself. Because right. who fucking cares about me? And yeah, I'm like, ah, I'll, I'll, you know, whatever. But I'll stand up for way, my family. I'll stand up for my nephews. I'll stand up for my friends. Um, well, I think it's also interesting for you is that you are also a Gemini, which yeah. is the sign of the twins. Yeah. And, and I shouldn't have been. I'm only Gemini because I was born premature. And oh. it's being, it was, it was the prematureness that killed my brother. Yeah. Because we both, we, our lungs were not fully developed. I gotcha. Uh, so he could not breathe. And I, he was worse. I was, I was salvageable. Um, I guess for whatever reason. <laughs> I mean, there was, I had enough for them to work with that by putting right. me in an incubator, my, my lungs made do. And, yeah. and eventually, you know, hey, I'm a voice actor, so they must have pumped me full of something. Right. Um, but he, but, but Gabriel didn't. Yeah. And, and. Was he first or why? second? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I think, um, I think I was first. Right. Okay. But I don't know. Um, but it's weird and this is going to sound really, really weird and sound like bullshit and it may be, and I'm just not aware, but like it, I rem I have a, a vague memory of being born. Yeah. Like there's a flash in my head of a room and I, of like, a, of like seeing a thigh and, and a doctor's hands and like shiny instruments and stuff. And it, everything's got this weird kind of orange tint to it. Like there's a cloud over my vision. And then you saw your mom's vagina and that's and when you're like, I'm gay. <laughs> I'm gay. Uh, <laughs> I've seen how the sausage is made. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe Gabriel just died of the shock. 
<laughs> and he's like, no, it's either this or gay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awful, oh, but funny. And that's why we're um, going down. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Michael, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. we're, I'm sure you're going to tell us some more when we... I, yeah, I, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Let's get a drink. Let's get a fucking drink. Let's get a drink. Okay. There's just one shadow. There's just one shadow right now. <laughs> funny story. Before we started, I couldn't get the light in this room to turn on, <sighs> the overhead light. So... There you go. Thank you. <laughs> we have a. I just let you all believe that's a beer. Yeah, it's it's, it's not, a but cherry cola Zavia. They're really good, actually. Um, so the light switch is attached to a fan mm -hmm. with a light on it, mm -hmm. and then we have a remote control for that. So you have to push the light button to get the light on. It was not turning on. The fan wasn't turning on. None of nothing, the light switches. Nothing were working. was working. Basically, nothing. the switch was just defunct. It was just not working when we first started, and <laughs> we turned it on. After we took a little break and it turns on fine. <laughs> like, Here we go. <laughs> no idea. It's literally never happened again. So happened I before, little, I mean. So I turned a little ghost inspector light on myself and was like, please tell yes, me, Jamie, there's just lights. one shadow. There's just one right now. <laughs> and that's why we're still recording, because if there were two, <laughs> I'd be out. <laughs> I'd be like, bye. <laughs> and I'd be like, I guess I'm doing this for you. That's right. Okay. Oh, so this story is about Elvis's twin. So to get, before I get started, let me tell you, I used a lot of references. So mm -hmm. the Unsolved Mysteries at Fandom, yeah. Wikipedia, BibleStudyTools.com, <laughs> get ready. Okay. All right. The Mystery of Jesse Garen Presley by Larry Geller, A Summer to Remember, Peter O. Whitmer by Pamela H. Sachs, and an article on Billings Gazette by Alan G. Breed. Okay. So I used all of these to get all of this information. It's so good. Have you ever been to Graceland? Yes, I okay, have. I have once, awful. years, years ago. It's so, <laughs> so tacky. Awful. It's so tacky. But I remember making such an impression on me as a kid when we went on a road trip. I guess I was probably 13, 14 or something yeah. like that. And I walked through and I'm like, there's no way this man didn't sell his soul to the devil. Right. <laughs> it's insane. And so the funny thing about that, which I um, didn't put it on any of this stuff, but I read, I did a lot of reading and going down various rabbit holes. But <clears throat> that was became public not long after Elvis died because of Priscilla Presley. Uh, so he had left the house to Lisa Marie. Right, right. And uh, who also had twins, incidentally. Mm. <laughs> um and it had, uh, it was like $500,000 in debt at the time. Wow. And she didn't know what she needed to do to, uh, because mom was in charge. Now, Priscilla Presley and Elvis, they they maintained a friendship after their divorce. So right. they were very amicable. Yeah. They left the courthouse holding hands. So they were still friends. And so she was in charge of the trust until Lisa Marie became of age, right? Right, right, So right. she decided... Not long after he died to open up the house for tours. And within six months, they had paid it off and then some. And now it is a huge moneymaker. Fuck. Huge moneymaker. Shit. So I'm that's open up my place of... up for tours and see if I do the same. I won't. It, but... won't, it won't be the same. <laughs> but might, that's why. You know, I might make a little money. Yeah, it is. Uh... It's just there's a lot of people that walk through it. And it's. It's huge. There are it's, Elvis things it's everywhere. It's a huge draw. And it is and I, a lot of people who are obsessed. Elvis and it was, was a little enormously too much for me. talented, but he, he had was. very bad taste. Bad taste. It was a bad time for design. It, it, it was an ugly time. It was an ugly time. It was. Oh, God, it was. And he did so many drugs, you guys. <laughs> so many drugs. Uh, 
And you can see that <laughs> reflected in the shit he bought. Oh, poor guy. But, and that's, poor and guy. he also was not great with money, uh, which is why they were, he was in so much debt. He gave a lot of gifts away. Yeah. He gave a lot of gifts. He bought his mom like two Cadillacs and she didn't know how to drive. So oh. let's oh. get into it. So okay. we know that on January 8th, <laughs> 1935, uh, just days just a, over 85 years ago, because I fucking just, did it again. Just two days. Yeah. Two over, days. Two. Two days. Two days over 85 years ago. Mm. I know. I can't help mm. it. Elvis Aaron Presley was born at his parents' two-room house in East Tupelo, Mississippi. What isn't commonly known is that Elvis was born about 35 minutes after his identical twin brother, Jesse Guerin. Tragically, Jesse was stillborn. The next day, the Presley, Barry, F- Presley family buried Jesse, named after his paternal grandfather, mm. in an unmarked grave in nearby Priceville Cemetery. They were so poor, they buried him in a cardboard box because oh. they could not afford a casket. Oh, that's so sad. Elvis, who spoke of his twin throughout his life, grew up an only child in a very poor family. His father, Vernon, worked a series of odd jobs, and in 1938... My dad's what really? Yeah, your dad's name is Vernon. He doesn't go by Vernon, but it's his middle name. Or it's his first name. He goes by he goes by Webb, his middle name, just oh, like I weird. go by Michael, my middle name. That's fucked up, James. Sorry, that's nothing. We're to just do with getting anything. started. It's <sighs> gonna be a lot of this, isn't there? We're like, no, Maybe. that's fucked up, Jamie. That's fucked up. I don't up. know. I didn't know that. So okay, <laughs> I didn't know his father's name was Vernon. Elvis's father, Vernon, worked a series of odd jobs. Okay, did your dad go to prison uh, when you were three? He did, he did not. He did, he not. did not. Okay, see, he, that's different. Yeah, that's didn't. different. So in 1938, he was sentenced to three years in prison for forging a $4 check. He spent less than a year behind bars, though, so he only spent a year. <laughs> it's like, that's a, that's almost a year for every dollar. I know. <laughs> he forged. He, only, he spent less than a year, though. Okay. In 1948, the Presleys moved from Tupelo to Memphis in search of better opportunities. There, Elvis attended Humes High School, where he failed a music class and was considered <laughs> quiet and an outsider. He graduated in 1953, becoming the first member of his immediate family to earn a high school diploma. Hmm. After graduation, he worked at, at a machinist shop and drove a truck before launching his music career with a July 1954 recording of That's All Right. Hmm. According to Larry Geller, Elvis's longtime personal hairstylist, spiritual mentor, and confidant. This is according to Larry Geller. He was definitely his hairstylist and part of the Memphis Mafia, which we'll get into in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But Elvis talked about his brother during their very first conversation in April of 1964. Larry did did Elvis's hair throughout his career after that, even at his funeral. Yeah. He had, had plenty of time around the king. So Elvis told Larry that as a child, he told everyone who would listen that he had a brother. He even had conversations with his brother and heard his voice when he was a boy and would tell people what Jesse had said to him. According to Larry, although Elvis didn't talk too terribly much about his brother, he knew he talked about him, but not all the time. It wasn't like something he was obsessed about. Uh He knew how deeply Elvis had been affected by this unfulfilled relationship. Elvis said, I tell you, Larry, being a twin has always been a mystery for me. I mean, we were in our mother's womb together, so why was he born dead and not me? He Mm. never got his chance to live. Think about it. Why me? Why was I the one that was chosen? And I've always wondered what would have been if he had lived. I really have. These kinds of questions tear my head up. There's got to be reasons for all this. Mm. After that emotional bomb drop, Elvis looked at the ground in silence for a moment. 
How fucking awkward for Larry, by the way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's just like, head up, please, honey. I'm working on your side. <laughs> right? Like, you meet him the first time? He tells me this story? He's like... So... Yeah. And then Elvis made it even more awkward and tender by saying, Larry, listen, I'm going to tell you something. And it might even sound strange, but it's something I've secretly thought about before. Maybe, maybe it was me. Maybe it was something I did, you know? Who knows? Maybe when we were in the womb together, we were fighting like Jacob and his twin, like it says in the Bible. Man, uh, that story always stuck with me. Maybe I was like Jacob who tried to stop his brother from being born first. Hey, I'm just saying, anything's possible. Uh, so, uh, if you don't know, the story Elvis is talking about is from Genesis 25. Mm-hmm. Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers born to Isaac and Rebekah. Verses 23 through 27 say... And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire. (laughs) I read it the way I read it. Hashtag why am I thus? Hashtag why am I thus? (laughs) And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Gross. He didn't say that. I said that. And the one people. God's like, ew. Bowels. Like, God doesn't even know how it works. It's not where they come from. And the, even, even God's like, ah, it's, I don't know what goes bowels, on down there know. is a mystery just, to me. I let someone else. Uh, <laughs> yes. Gabriel took care of that one. Um And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. Verse 26 states that Esau was born before Jacob, who came out holding onto his older brother's heel as if he was trying to pull Esau back into the womb so that he could be firstborn. (laughs) The name Jacob means he grasps the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for deceptive behavior. Sorry, Jacobs, but you shady as fuck. That's Hebrew. That's not me. Um, But I don't know. It seems like a lot of assumption about an infant's arm when he was sharing the guts of one woman's body with another infant. That's a lot to put on an infant, I think. That's a lot. That's a That's lot. a lot. That's a lot. Anyway, since Esau was... Different time. <laughs> different times, different babies, <laughs> different heels, different hands, different wombs. I mean, she talked to God directly. Why am I thus? <laughs> why am I thus? Yeah. <laughs> Which God is what Elvis said. God why am I thus? And God had to fucking speak in metaphor. Why can't he just like, look, you got two kids. Yeah, They're going to have gas. some trouble. It's just gas. It's just gas. <laughs> it's just you gas. have two boys. They're going to fight because gas. boys will be boys. But you're here, You need more iron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't God just tell her that? Right, get some fiber. It's gonna be so cryptic. <laughs> any, any, since Esau was born first, he became legal heir to the family birthright, which included, among other things, being heir to the covenant between God and Abraham. Does Esau like? Is that Hebrew for like he whose brother grabs his heel? Maybe. <laughs> uh, basically, the son of God was going to be born to the line of the firstborn. Mm. I think it's something about a hunter. Esau, something about a hunter. I can't remember, though. Isaac. So, okay. Isaac was their dad. Mm. And he was Abraham's son. So his twins were grandsons to Abraham. And that's who the covenant with God was. Right, 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 right. So right, the covenant right. meant that the son of God was going to be born through that line. Yeah. So the birthright, that's where the son of God was going to be born, right? It's still pretty fresh, all things considered, (laughs) at this time period. It's a big fucking deal. Also, how were they to know that if the son of the Lord was born, it would be by a woman, and if God was the daddy, their line didn't really fucking matter. Right. That's true. But I guess they were going to bring him up godly, whatever. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) 
Esau was daddy's favorite. Jacob was a mama's boy. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So one day Esau had come in from the field and was hungry. I mean, he must have been starving because when he asked Jacob for food, Jacob said he would only feed him if he traded the food for his birthright. Esau just wasn't about that spiritual life. So he was like, birthright, schmirthright. I'm gonna die without this lentil stew. So give me the stew, bitch. <laughs> God, gave him his birthright for lentil stew. I know. To be clear, he was not about to die. I guess he just he really just liked hungry. lentils. He's He's down for some lentils, which is unexpected. Like, I did not expect that. Also, I didn't know anyone has such strong feelings I about know, lentils. Lentils. I mean, I do now. Right. I mean, I hear that the the Instapot makes really great lentil soup, <laughs> but I've never made it because it doesn't just strike just me as lentils. something I'd give up my birthright for. But well, yeah. Now we know. I now I don't want to make I don't want to make lentils because I feel like it's too high of a price. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure too. That's like a that's like a um, Whole Foods price, right? But <laughs> it might have been easy for Esau to say, "Yeah, sure, I'll trade it," because he knew it didn't fucking matter. What he said to Jacob didn't matter. Ah, uh, yeah. Because yeah. when Isaac was dying, he told Esau to go hunt for special meal, after which he would pass the birthright blessing. Or whatever, however you do that to Esau, right? Yeah, right. So I told you it didn't fucking matter. So Rebecca <laughs> overheard this and she was like, Jacob, baby, this is your chance. Dress up as Esau and make your daddy think you're him so you'll get the blessing. <laughs> and that's exactly how she sounded. I love your version of Bible stories. Thank you. You should do a show. <laughs> Thanks. So he did that. And Isaac allegedly lived up until he was 180 years old. Wow. Fucking old. So by then his eyesight was pretty shot and he couldn't tell that that was Jacob and not Esau. Also, they were twins. And maybe he just wasn't good with faces. <laughs> He's like, are you are you my boys or right. have He's I just like, gotten my medication mixed up again? Right. So he was tricked. Esau was pissed because Jacob got the blessing and Jacob had to run away or get super murdered by his brother, which we know super happens murdered. a lot in the Bible. They super murder each other. Yada, yada. Jacob became the patriarch of the Israelites. Esau was a forefather of the Edomites. And I'll let the Bible take over from there. If you would like to read it, it's in in the drawer of a, a, it's a hotel, hotel room, near you. Or you can get like the audiobook version read by Larry King, all like 50 hours. Right. <laughs> <sighs> can you imagine? I, I, if we could look, we're Gary Busey. Gary Busey oh, reads the fun. Bible. That's more fun. Okay. <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey. So that's the story that Elvis okay. was talking about. That's the, the famous twin story. Yes. Back to Elvis. Okay. Larry Geller was a prominent member of the Memphis Mafia. For those the of hairdresser, you, right? The hairdresser, right? The hairdresser, yes. Okay. For those of you under various ages, because I, it depends, I don't, fuck it, for, under my age, I don't know. The Memphis <laughs> Mafia was basically Elvis's posse. But they weren't just hangers on. They all had jobs and actually worked for Elvis. Mm. Um, Elvis was known to take out his bad moods on them. But for the most part, everyone got along and was financially rewarded in some way or another. Sometimes they would get salary. Sometimes they would just get houses and cars and stuff like that. <laughs> but he paid dude. them. And they did work for it. They weren't just leashes. Nice. Larry felt that the mafia itself was a way... In a way, Elvis trying to reach out and find a brother he never got the chance to know. Mm. In Larry's own words, he called us his family. Yet at all times, even when he felt betrayed, he felt a deep concern for the very ones who hurt him the most. Sound familiar? And in a curious way, the guys were a composite of his twin, but never really a replacement. Uh, so Elvis is considered, like we said, a twinless twin. Yeah. The term was coined by clinical psychologist Dr. Peter O. Whitmer, who had devoted several years to researching twins, especially those separated by death. 
Whitmer believes that twinless twins are torn between wanting to prove their uniqueness and missing their other half. Mm. Most of these surviving twins believe the spirits of their deceased twins have been close to them, sometimes as a guardian angel. For the record, when the light turned on, Michael said, <laughs> like, God damn it, game. <laughs> However, that said, I think sometimes maybe the deceased twin gets reincarnated as, say, the surviving twin's nephew, but that's just me. Now, (laughs) Dr. Whitmer Whitmer wrote a book in 1996 called The Inner Elvis. He said, if you talk to any twinless twin, any surviving twin, Elvis is big in their life. When I read that, I immediately thought, that's bullshit. Not Michael. I don't know if I've ever even heard you talk about Elvis. Oh, I, I know a lot about Elvis. Well, we've never talked about it's never come it up as much, but we have talked about you being a surviving twin extensively. Yeah, yeah. right. Comes up. So I was really set on like, man, I don't know about that. When I read the rest of his sentence, they understand the power behind his ineffability as, in essence, a twentieth-century shaman. And I was like, "You're totally hard on for shaman." And then I was like, "This is I'm do I'm fucking doing this story." Okay, so. <laughs> Some observers have debated the significance of Jesse Guerin's Presley's stillbirth to Elvis's personality. I find it having no one, no effect of him on him whatsoever difficult to believe, especially when you take into consideration what his mother said about Elvis and Jesse, which we'll get into in a minute. Dr. Whitmer believes Jesse's death was the singular engine in Elvis's life. Something to keep in mind about Whitmer's work is that it's not simply the result of diligent research, although he did do plenty of that. What makes it special is his personal perspective. Get ready yep. to jump into a fun little rabbit hole. I know who this is. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. First of all, Whitmer was completing a high school in Los Angeles when he happened to meet Howard Kalen, the lead singer of the rock group, The Turtles. Whitmer could play the drums, so Kalen invited him to join the band. He did. Whitmer played the drums for The Turtles until he left for college. So he's got that. Right, right, right. While Whitmer was an undergraduate at the University of California in Berkeley... In the 1960s, he took a psychology course taught by none other than Timothy fucking Leary. (laughs) Yes. Of course. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. (laughs) Of course, anyone who knows anything about LSD knows its biggest fan was Timothy Leary. (sighs) To be more specific, Leary was an American psychologist and writer known for advocating the exploration of the therapeutic potential of psychedelic drugs Mm -hmm. under controlled conditions. There's so much good research to suggest, though, that That is true. the, The incidence of of heroin addicts being completely cured overnight by a session with some kind of psychotropic substance and then not developing an addiction to that substance because actually psychotropics as i understand it are not addictive in the same way that um an opiate is right so but i mean like the experience might be addictive the experience might be but typically like there there's a lot of really good research to suggest Mm -hmm. and microdosing now is a big deal yeah and it's like it's so fucking infuriating that the government's like no it's a schedule one no fuck it can't (laughs) we want it for us it wants it's gonna help people we don't give a shit about that yeah so one day whitmer gave leary a ride They talked, and Leary suggested they stay in touch. Leary later was thrown into prison for possession of marijuana. Of course, they were looking for something to throw him in prison for. But he escaped with the help of the Weatherman, a radical left group. When Whitmer wanted to write a biography of Leary, he got back in touch with them. Whitmer's friendship with Leary opened the door to other counterculture icons, and in 1987, Whitmer published a collection of profiles of seven of these unique men called Aquarius Revisited. 
also profiled, poet Allen Ginsberg, authors mm. Ken Kesey. Yeah, Ken, Ken Kesey. Kesey. He wrote uh, uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, yes. Norman Mailer, Tom yeah. Robbins, William S. Burroughs, and last but not least, Hunter S. Thompson. <sighs> Thompson being Thompson, <laughs> Whitmer went on to write an unauthorized biography about just Thompson called When the Going Gets Weird, The Twisted Life and Times of Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and there was this really funny story about he was trying to get in touch with him and he couldn't. So he contacted Thompson's mother and said, hey, you know, let's meet. Can we meet? And the day came that they're supposed to meet and she canceled because she had the flu. So he sent her flowers. Thompson freaked out and sent him like a restraining order. <laughs> I, to, to stay away from his mom. He never knew why. There was no reason for it, but he just freaked out and was like, you can never, and like had this whole injunction man. filed and everything. It Thompson, was real weird. Thompson was a, he was a difficult man. Yes, yes. But Powerful they, writer. They had been friends. Like they had hung out mm. together. And so anyway, since his youth, Whitmer has been, had been fascinated with biography. In fact, he had majored in psychology in part because of his interest in the genre of psychological biography. Mm. With his connections, his experience, and his experiences, as well as his education, if Dr. Peter O. Whitmer says Elvis was fundamentally affected by the death of his twin, I believe it. Fuck yeah. On top of Whitmer's professional opinion, we have Elvis's professional mommy opinion. Elvis's mother, Gladys, <laughs> pointed to his birth and Jesse's death as the crucible that forged Presley's destiny to do great things. Mm. He, she said he is living for two people. He has mm. the power of two people. She said that Elvis would go visit Jesse's grave at times, and other people have said he did so throughout his life. Yep. So even if Jesse's death didn't have an effect, having a mother who believed it did would no doubt have had an impact on him. Yeah. I think Jesse's death definitely affected him, but I also think his mother's belief that he was living for two people left another mark on Elvis. And if these events influenced Elvis's success, they most certainly influenced Elvis's self-destructive tendencies as well. And just to interject here. You can't have one without the other. uh, Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I want to interject here. It's, It's easy to think like, well, of course, if you grew up being told that story. Right that it's going to affect him because, you know, children are always going to be affected by the stories their their right. parents ply them with. But it's quite possible, and in my own experience, this bears out, not just mine, but other mm-hmm. people that I know, um, his parents may have had to tell him because he knew. Right. That's what That was my case. My parents didn't tell me until I was oh. older and I told them. And because I, I freaked them out, I just knew things that they right. were like, How, who told you that? And they got mad at my older brother thinking he had told me, but he never told me. Yeah. Because my brother didn't know about it. I, I guess he knew about it, but he didn't know. I, I, he was, I guess he was, why, my brother, I can't ten. remember. This, huh? He was 10 when it happened. Nine. Nine, <clears> eight nine. And a half, nine, something like that. It's almost a decade. Not, not, not exactly a decade. But, um, but yeah, but they thought, they thought my brother had told me and he hadn't because I don't think my brother knew the story. Like, right. I don't think he knew. I don't want Either way, parents, he didn't tell you. He didn't tell me. I just knew. I had an imaginary yeah. friend with that name. And, and mm-hmm. he looked just like me. And, and I talked to mm-hmm. him. And I, I said he came from a star. And I could point to that star in the sky every Aww. night, all throughout the year, regardless of what position the star was. And I can still do it. Yeah. It was just because I just remember doing it as a kid. It's one right. of it's um yeah, it's it's weird. It's fucking weird. And I knew about it, and my parents were like, How? They got really mad at my brother. Mm-hmm. And my brother was like, fuck you, I didn't tell yeah. him anything. And then yeah, and then so my parents told me. So it's I, I'll interject just saying that I think it's possible that rather than his mom kind of telling him this story, she probably had to because of uh based upon what I know, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think her loss. 
she put off on her son based oh. upon what because it, it was she she was very invested in Elvis. We'll put it and we'll get into some of that. Sure. But sure. I and I think that there's no way you can't be affected. And so I don't want to yeah. say that it her that it was just being it, it was just, just a story her. that no, affected him. The, because you losing, would be affected regardless. Yeah. yeah. But then I think having because knowing what you know and having been affected by that, even when you did found out yeah. find out, imagine if your parents had constantly told you you're living for two you're going to be amazing because you are your brother you're the same imagine the pressure on that too because that's what she did right Mm. uh so and again we'll get more into her and to be be fair it could be it it may not be that that his mother because i mean i it could be that he was already so emotionally affected by feeling like he was a survivor and he had this responsibility because i think he felt that regardless that maybe his mother's way of helping him is like you are great yeah. You're great. Like, it wasn't so much you have to do this, but don't worry. I know you feel like you have to, but you've got this. Right. Like, it could have just been that his mother was trying to help him it cope with the feeling yeah, of guilt and, by assuring him he was worthy of living for two years. Absolutely. People. Yeah. And I get that. And she definitely wanted to make him feel special. And I think, you know, everybody's, not everybody, but I think she was doing her best, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, keep in mind, he was the first one to graduate high school. So mm-hmm. there was a lack of education there. And she yeah. was trying, she was recovering from the loss yeah. of, of the child. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. This is a rough. Parents, parents also in those, in those times, and I, I shouldn't just say in those times, but parents often will ply their children with, with what in retrospect seemed like horrible stories in an effort to motivate them. My mother right. was told by her grandmother that she was the reason my grandmother couldn't walk. Jesus. And that, so she's like, so you need to be there to take care of her. Uh-huh. You know, right. which was, I mean, that was just the price she had to pay right. for like, you know, to, yeah. to get, to make sure that her daughter was taken care of. Yeah. So it's fucked up. Yeah. It's fucked and up. And in times when they were raised, they were, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard. So you, you had to do what did worked. what you had to do. Yeah. So Linda Thompson, who's no relation to Hunter that I can find easily <laughs> because I got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's uh, such a uh, simple story. <laughs> yeah. She dated Elvis for four years. Linda was Miss Tennessee, USA in 1972 when she first met Elvis. Hmm. She ended things because she wanted a more normal life and she could not have that with Elvis. He understood and they actually remained good friends until his death the following year. So they broke up in 76. That's weird. He stayed good friends with his exes. He did. He did. Um, And keep in mind. I mean, I'm just saying that I do that. There's one exception, but most of my other exes I'm still friends with. Yeah. Well, keep in mind with her too. She was probably 18, 19 when they got together. Yeah, so yeah. there was a significant age difference as well. Mm. Uh, but she said that Elvis told her that he had had a confusing dream when they were together when she appeared to him as Jesse. Elvis told her, I came out first and you smothered to death trying to save me. You let me come out first, but in the process, you died. <sighs> right. Confusing dream, heartbreaking. For for whatever reason, he was dreaming about his brother only a few years before his death. It's sad, yes, and I kind of hate doing this, but not really. But I want to discuss Linda Thompson for two quick minutes. Okay. 1977, she was cast. So she's known as one of Elvis's girlfriends. But in 1977, she was cast as one of the Hee Haw Honeys. But by 1985, she started working as a lyricist. She's collaborated with Kenny Rogers, Richard Marks, Josh Groban, Clint Eastwood, and Celine Dion, amongst others. And she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Song in 1993 with composer David Foster for the song I Have Nothing by the fucking Whitney Houston from The Bodyguard. Shit! Yeah. So she's done well for herself. she's a... Wow. She was actually married to David Sorry, Foster. Sorry, she wanted a normal life? Right. <laughs> right. But I guess re- I people mean, I don't guess know what she looks like. To, yeah. yeah. 
She was actually married to composer David Foster from 1991 to 2005, but she did get married in 1980 as well. At the time, the former Olympic gold medal decathlete went by Bruce Jenner. We oh. now know her as Caitlyn Jenner. They had two sons together, Brandon and Brody Jenner. Wow. What the actual fuck with all what, these people in this history? Such a what is fascinating. They're fascinating like, history. Like six degrees of separation from yes. everybody. Jeez. I know. It was weird. It was I could weird. see this like going. Speaking of biblical things, I could see in the future like there being a whole passage in some new holy book where like Elvis is the father Abraham, like he's the connection. <laughs> <Right>. Like <laughs> it all comes from Elvis. from Elvis. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Linda wrote a book called "A Little Thing Called Life: From Elvis's Graceland to Bruce Jenner's Caitlyn and Songs in Between" that came out in 2016, and it's totally on my list now. I'm oh wow! Like, I'm gonna read it. <laughs> Fuck yeah, me too. Okay, so back to Elvis Whitmer okay. and Twinless Twins. Yeah. According to Whitmer, Twinless Twins, like Elvis, are haunted by two questions. Why am I the one who is alive? Mm. And which twin am I? Mm. This double-edged sword of specialness and guilt hangs over the head of every surviving twin, he writes. Their lives are dominated by a racking sense of puzzlement over their identity, over, the, over who they fundamentally are. Whitmer believes Elvis's belief that he was living for two people helped drive him to achievement. And he argues, and this is kind of weird, but I get it in a way, that the music remind that music reminded Elvis of a happy world he'd shared with Jesse in the womb. Yeah. I get After that. all, they I listened. Totally get that. Yeah. They listened to, in utero to go, the gospel music that their mother Gladys sang in church. I mean, music having an effect on him, sure, but he actually liked to go to black churches when he was a teen to listen to their gospel. So it's not like Gladys sang in a black church choir. I just want to be clear about that. He made the choice to yeah. go to different. Yeah. So Whitmer believes a lot of the events in Elvis's life, including people he met, were directly related to his brother and his mother, Gladys. Yeah, this gets a little Freudian, but let's talk about mommy for a bit. Sure, his sure. time. If I was going to cast Gladys Presley today. Who would be? I'd cast Presley? Rosie O'Donnell. Oh, okay. Especially because okay. younger, she died young, uh, but youngish, I guess. But in, especially some of the younger pictures, yeah. Like think of a League of Their Own, Rosie O'Donnell. I was just thinking own. that actually. Yeah, that's kind of what she looks like. Okay, I'll show you a picture casting. later. Strong casting. Yeah. So, uh, Elvis was close to his mom. He was already famous when he was drafted, and he because he served in the army, mm -hmm. um, right, right, and right. he trained at Fort Hood. Right. It's like two thirds of the way from Dallas to Austin if you just look at the map and ignore roads in specific directions. <laughs> As the crow flies. As the crow flies. <laughs> I told Jack I thought that. <laughs> uh, I told Jack I thought that Fort Hood was haunted as fuck. And he replied, Oh, God, a military base? Yeah, they all have to be. But that's the thing about the military. It doesn't matter if shit's haunted or not. You do your fucking job. <laughs> that's, that's my military man. God, I love Jack. <laughs> so, Jack is my hero. Yeah, for someone who doesn't believe in ghosts, he sure does think a lot of places are haunted. <laughs> for someone who doesn't believe in ghosts, he accepts them. <laughs> he sure does see a lot He's, of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in that thing right over there I'm looking yeah, at. But I don't it's, believe in you it. Know. I need some evidence. <laughs> Anyways, Gladys had been ill. Uh, but on a trip back to Memphis from Colleen in 1958, Gladys took a turn for the worse and ended up being hospitalized with severe liver damage. She was jaundiced and very, very ill. Elvis even got a seven-day leave to go see her. She died a few days later at 46, and Elvis was only 23. He called his mama his best girl. 
Uh, he openly cried a few times in public, which is surprising for a country boy in the 50s. Yeah. And it actually changed a lot of the naysayers about Elvis. Uh -huh. It changed their opinion on him because, you know, they thought he, was, thought this was, this devil fucking, yeah. that was this devil rock and roll guy that was bringing sex and interracial things. Yeah. Like, oh, but he cried for his mama. But he cried for his mama. So that just broke people's mm. hearts. Nowadays, I would think it was like marketing. Right, like that's just intel yeah, intelligent but... marketing. But back then, he was so young, and it yeah. totally went against his. That's the thing about Elvis, brand. That people, the thing about people that don't know about Elvis, it, it, and and I do know a lot about him because it, yeah, I, I, it's not something we talk about because I mean, but I, I know his music, it's I know so his movies. It's nerdy. Just, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's weird. I don't meet a lot of other people that like he's just I don't know. I, uh, um, he he was he did everything in earnest like he was yeah. absolutely like he was a sweet guy yeah that's like what he really said. was he had his moods but right. ultimately like he was weird and money definitely corrupted he was he was a weird dude but i think it, he struggled a lot to, to know who he was but yeah. he was ultimately very always very worried about doing the right thing yeah yeah so um something else to keep in mind about gladys was that after giving birth to jesse and elvis she bled so badly that she was hospitalized for three weeks mm. So if he felt guilty for killing his brother already, he probably felt guilty for nearly killing his mom. Oh, it's not rational, but that had to have an impact as well. He set his parents up after he became a success, made it a priority. He called her every night when he was on tour. They were very close. In fact, one night Elvis and his band were driving to a new town when their car caught fire. When Elvis called Gladys that night, she immediately asked what happened. She had had a dream where she saw a big fire around Elvis. Very close. Maybe a little too close. Mm -hmm. um, when he was a kid, she gave him his own silverware for lunch because he was special and shouldn't have to use school silverware. Oh. Stuff like that. Oh. Just a little too much. She it's walked... so sweet, <laughs> though, but, sweet, it's, it, but it's, 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 not, it's yeah. not a wise choice. Right. She walked him to school every day until he was a teen and finally was like, you know, Mom, I got to watch myself. So... That's a good Elvis. Well, thank you. <laughs> Mom, I'm going to walk myself. Uh, uh -huh. uh, so. <laughs> I take it back. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no. I, I can't even do the lip. So he said, I want to walk by myself. She said, okay. He would walk. She would follow him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then she became jealous of Elvis's fans. She didn't like that touring and his fame took him away from her. She became depressed, started drinking heavily, and then started taking diet pills to lose the weight. When he was drafted, Gladys's depression only got worse because she was worried about him. They could not talk as well for the two weeks he was in basic. And when they finally talked, they both just cried on the phone at each other for an hour. Sweet, but too close. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's too close. It's psychologically damaging. Yeah. They were codependent. They were codependent. Like. Absolutely. It's understandable. So she had things, hepatitis, but... but she actually died of a heart attack. Hello, mm. diet pills. Mm. Speed kills, kids. Don't oh, do it. God. They were close, but at some point you've got to let your children go. And then when you think about this, the depression, the, uh, the drinking, the diet pills, mm -hmm. that was all stress that was brought about because of his career. So I'm sure there was a lot of guilt there as well yeah. for his own mother's death, who was his favorite person. Well, what a, what a, what a position to be in. I mean, like you yeah. feel like you have to have this career because you have to kind of 
I mean, that's what you she have to wanted make yourself, for him. Well, but also you kind of felt like I have to do this because I have to live for two people. So right. I have to like, I have to be worth, I have to be worthy of the life I've been given. Right. Uh, you know, and it, I think surviving to a twinless twins feel that more acutely than most people because they feel like, yeah, someone specifically died so that I could be here. Like exactly. I took someone's place. Yes. Right. And so I got to do, so. Why me? I so better make it worth a, it. So he had to like really show. And I think all the showiness, all, all the grandeur of how he lived was just to show his brother, like, see, I'm making see? the most of it. Yeah. Um, this is for you. Right. And then, but, but that career, the only way he could glorify his brother was by damaging his mom. Yeah. It's fucking yeah. horrible. But not on know? purpose, of course not. Not. not on purpose, but like imagine. Well, she being, encouraged being in that it position. until she didn't, right? <laughs> she right. loved it until she didn't. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Whitmer thinks the Colonel, Elvis's manager, became a partial replacement of his mother. They had, shall we say, a similar physique. According to Whitmer, he never wore a necktie, preferring instead a loose blouse-like shirt, often with a floral pattern, worn outside his pants. His features, figure, and garb were all remarkably like those of Gladys. Hmm. Now, Colonel Tom Parker had his own weird fucking life, but we don't have time to get into it. He was an illegal immigrant from the Netherlands, but that wasn't discovered publicly until the 1980s. <laughs> It's also most likely the reason Elvis never touched international or toured internationally. That's the, right. The colonel claimed he was just a boy from West Virginia, which was a lie, and he paid for that colonel title, um, which is ironic because he was actually kicked out of the military for gaining too much weight, which he did on purpose to get out of the military. <laughs> what a fascinating dude. Yeah, look him up. This whole story is bizarre. So back to do Dr. Whitmer again. He also believes Elvis's fans were themselves representative of Mama. Right. Mm. Crowds of immature women who only wanted to tell him how special he was. Mm. It's a little creepy. It is creepy. Sweet, but a little creepy. creepy. It takes a toll on you, too. Like Larry, <clears throat> the hairstylist, Whitmer also believes the singer's friends, the Memphis Mafia, were multiple versions of the brother he never had. Even Elvis's relationship with Priscilla seems kind of an effort to bring Jesse and his mother, Gladys, back to life. <clears throat> Elvis sort of made Priscilla over in his own image. He even had her dye her hair black like his. Whitmer, and they had the bouffant. Her hair yeah. became real big, and women started wearing their hair really big after that. Yeah, that was the thing. He had the pompadour. She had the pompadour. It, it's interesting. It's an interesting huh. theory. Whitmer believes Elvis was able to indulge himself in the narcissistic love associated with his brother while deflecting active sexual urges that were attached to his mother. Freudian, mm, yes, mm. but I've had read Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. You should read it. It's really fucked up. You mm, would love it. Mm, mm. Did they meet when she was 14 and he was 24? Yes, Oof. in Germany while he was stationed there. Mm. Was he unethical in his treatment of her? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But he did not have sex with her until their wedding night seven years after they met. And well, according to Priscilla, he never really had a sexual interest in her. He also said he had issues with sex and women who were mothers. Again, hmm. paging Dr. Freud. <laughs> we know he had sexual interest in a lot of women, though, because mm. he was fucking around on Priscilla constantly. His well, lack so maybe of... Maybe it was hard for him. It was maybe difficult for him to have sex with people he liked. Or could that he be. was in love with. It could be. Or if she's a representation of his brother... They were more mm. siblings than, yeah. you know. Yeah. His lack of interest in her is what led to their eventual divorce. She cheated on him with their karate instructor, and he couldn't handle it. Wow. Interestingly, Priscilla, and, and some of the stuff that she put in the book, because um, she talks about him sexually attacking her, raping mm. her, Oof. but she said that she used the wrong wording, and she regrets writing it, that it wasn't like that, mm. per se. So you, you, you look it up, and then look up what she said after the fact, because she wrote it in the 80s. Mm. Interestingly... 
Priscilla Presley went on to date Robert Kardashian because, of course, she fucking did because the Kardashians are everywhere and we cannot get away from them. <laughs> that was like, are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? God. So there's uh, also a conspiracy that Jesse is still alive and was given away or sold since their family was so poor. But I find it hard to believe if they were going to give away one child, they would give away the older one. Mm. Firstborn is usually the one that they keep. It's been yeah. since biblical times, the firstborn, yeah, right? that's true. So, also, how the fuck are you going to sell a kid? Right. Like, if you're that poor... Mm-hmm. And you you don't have connections. You don't know where to go. Like, hey, yeah. let's go. Let's go find uh, you know that mafia dude who you know will totally yeah. let in this fucking you know family of dirt farmers. And come also, in. Like, if she doesn't... was in the hospital for three weeks, how who's finding the time to sell a baby? Yeah, there's no way. Um, I think it's bullshit. The evidence it's is complete. weird. They use this whole birth certificate thing, and the dad put the death and he put the date. He put the seventh one day, and then the eighth. Or on one section and then the eighth on the next section, proving that he was alive. And it's like, maybe it's just a distressed dad whose wife is in the fucking hospital yeah. and, and his it was son probably died. happened over a period of like 30 hours that she was in labor. And so right. who fucking knows what day counts? Exactly. Like people are just like, oh, yes. I know. Lewis Carroll must be Jack the Ripper because he wrote this <sighs> poem. In, yeah. And if you decode it, if you rearrange the letters, it yeah. says like womb slashing. And you're like, I tried. Yeah, I, did, oh. I did try to get into it. But a lot of people involved in this conspiracy are also involved in the Elvis Lives conspiracy, and I fucking couldn't do it. There's a lot of really dumb people out there. Maybe another time we can get into it, but <laughs> shit, I didn't have it in it hit me. <laughs> so basically, losing the brother he never knew he had had a huge impact on Elvis, and the pressure of living for two that was placed on him not only by his mother, but himself seemed to be too much for Elvis in the end. Yeah. Larry said that Elvis would share everything with his mafia. Personal shit, political shit, religious shit, private shit, 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 all the shit. But (laughs) he never really heard Elvis talk about his twin after that first conversation. Not with Larry. He certainly discussed his brother with other friends and had visited Jesse's grave. But then, in 1977, Elvis told Larry about a dream he'd had about Jesse. You won't believe the dream I just had. Man, it was so real. And I can remember dreaming about my brother, Jesse Guerin, since I was a little kid. But there we were together, on stage. Seemed like thousands of people in the audience. And they were screaming at us. It was wild. We were dressed alike, wearing identical white jumpsuits. And we were both playing matching guitars slung around our shoulders. There were two blue spotlights, one shining on him, one on me. And I kept looking at him, and man, he was the spitting image of me. I'll tell you something else, Lawrence. Jesse had a way better voice than me. Elvis died only a few months after that dream. He was 42. (sighs) Which is how old I am, and that's weird. (laughs) It's like, wow, I haven't really accomplished anything. Um, (laughs) Yeah, isn't that crazy? Wow. So it seems, yeah, it seems as though... It really did have a huge effect on his life and looking into all of the relationships. I mean, this could have gone on and on and on. Yeah. But wow. so that's that's Elvis and Jesse. And there's wow. a band named uh, Elvis and Elvis and Jesse and Je- Jesse's twin or something like that. There's a band that yeah. talks that has his name in it. Of course, yes, there's. Yeah. But, of course, yeah, why not? Yeah, right. Wow. But yeah, that's the story. And psychologically, it's like he must have already been, he was already in a very dark place in his life mm-hmm. when he died, mm-hmm. like for a couple of several years beforehand. And I think uh, psychologically, that dream about Jesse was kind of him giving himself permission to die. 
Yeah, it you could know, be in, in a weird way. Well, it maybe like it was a, Jesse giving him permission. Well, six, I mean, maybe the dream six of real. one, half a dozen of the yeah. other, literally. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it, it's it's really it's really weird. Um. And then when he's talking the story, he's like, "It was so real." I find that those dreams that are so real that they usually are trying to tell you something if it's not actually a visitation. Yeah. So. Yeah. You never know. I mean, it's it's so weird. I think um. Young, the, we've talked about him on the show yeah. before, uh, Carl Gustav Young. He had he talked about having a patient who had who had bouts of depression now and then, but he was going through therapy and he wasn't. He didn't happen to be depressed at the time mm-hmm. uh, that he was telling uh, Young about this dream he had. He's like, "Yeah, I, I mountain climb, and I had this dream that I was climbing up this mountain and that I I fell and grabbed on, and um, you know, and then I that I just let go. In the dream, yeah. I just you know let go and I died." And Young was like, um, are you planning a trip to go mountain climbing soon? And he's like, yeah, in a couple of weeks. He's like, don't go. <laughs> Just um, in case. He's like, I think you have an unconscious desire to die that you're not oh. aware of right now. And I think if you find yourself, if you put yourself in the circumstances resembling that dream, they will become conscious and you will act on them. And he did. <gasps> the guy went on a, a rock climbing trip and died while scaling a cliff face i mean he fell to his death no one really knows if he did it on purpose but it just so happened that he died well it either was a premonition or a premonition <laughs> right was, yeah <laughs> Fuck. yeah 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 but i mean to, to young they're all the same a premonition or an, un, an unconscious desire i mean you know unconscious desires often denote premonition. yeah like they're one and the same thing but then you have the dream though that um gladys had about elvis being surrounded by fire yeah you know Dreams That's... are fucked up. Dreams, there's a lot of weirdness going on mm-hmm. there. We don't even we don't even really understand what they are. I mean, yeah. there's so many prevailing theories, and I think there's different kinds of dreams. There's different quality of dreams. Like, you can have some... There's one uh, school of thought. I haven't said that in a long time. Oh, you haven't. Um, there's a school of thought that thinks that most of the images you see while you sleep are just your brain kind of processing excess information and deciding what they can, like, jettison and what needs to be filed away in the long-term yeah. memory. Because there's this whole process and the brain seems to kind of do it while you're sleeping. It seems right. to be one of the rationales for the body to sleep so that your brain can be like, okay, we're, we're doing some stock taking. Right, right. And uh, which you can't do when your conscious mind is having to worry about the world right in front of you. Yeah. So a lot of your dreams, it's why you know, you'll have, um, you know, like uh, last night I was watching, we watched Defending Your Life. And then I mm-hmm. went to bed and then had a dream about Fiddler on the Roof. And <laughs> only because while I was watching... Uh, um, this movie directed and starring Albert Brooks, who's Jewish, Jewish, very brilliant Jewish comedian, writer, actor, director. I thought, man, he'd be great as Tevia. <laughs> and then you have And that. then I have this dream where I'm in like some weird bombed out theater in Warsaw, like reliving the old days <laughs> with some guy that originated the role and, you know, yeah. in that in that area. And I'm like, oh, yeah, and here's the old put. And I'm like, what the fuck? And that's just my brain kind of going like, Processing. yeah, you thought about that, but we're not going to really need that anytime soon. So we're mm-hmm. just going to like put it in your, you know, in your mind. It's kind of weird. But sometimes in the process of doing that, your brain will dig up very deep things that need mm-hmm. to be processed that have just been triggered by some chance encounter during the day. Right. So that while you're brain is filing through the stuff that it's throwing away it goes oh oh oh, actually oh hey that leads to this and this this oh cool and doing this we found something that needs to be dealt with right do you dream a lot uh not that i remember if if i if i tell myself to remember my dream before i go to bed then i do but i don't often right yeah i dream very mundane all the time yeah all the and there's sometimes weird there's sometimes just telling me something there's just a bunch of different dreams sometimes they're 
premonition, sometimes they're visitation. And be- I think because I dream so much, I can tell the difference in yeah. what, what so a dream that was is. My next question. Like, is yeah. it, does the, does it feel like a premonition at the time or does it, does, does the fact that it kind of comes true make you go back and be like, yeah, that dream did feel at a lot more. At the time more. when I wake up, I know it's different. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've, um, I've had that experience yeah. too. And, and like, it's the yeah, same I... thing with like having someone spirit visit you. It's yeah. different. It's just different. That's yeah. the only way. And and I know yeah. if I'm having a dream that's supposed to be telling me something that I'm supposed to take something from, that that's a different feeling. Yeah. And then if it's just a dream that's crazy, poor Jack, because I'm going to tell him all about it. <laughs> But he tells me all about video games and comic books that I don't necessarily care about. So it's fair. It's totally fair. It balances out. Uh, So, um, you know, but I think that that's with with dreaming. I think people who dream more probably know because I dream constantly. And uh, I think people who do have a tendency to know the difference between what a dream is telling you, if it's telling you something or if it's just processing. So it's interesting. Maybe we should do. Episodes on dreams, no, twins, dreams. Could, we'll yeah. do it all. Yeah, why, why not? not? Why not? Oh, that was so good. Good, so good. Good, good twinning. We a twinned. Of, a lot of food for thought. Um, we have a few announcements. Yeah, yeah. What do we? What do we? We what have we appearances announcing? coming up. We do very soon, actually. Just a couple yes, of weeks. Yes, in we'll a couple be in, of weeks, uh, we'll be in Laredo, Texas. Laredo for STCE's Comic Con. That'll be fun. Okay, so that convention is the 25th and the 26th. Yes. But if you have VIP tickets on the 24th, they're opening it up, and we will be doing a live podcast. Yes! So come to that panel. If you have VIP tickets, you can look at it on STCE Comic Con, Ease Comic Con's website. Google Laredo Comic Con, it'll come up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that is January the 24th, the yeah. night of the 24th. Yeah. Then you have the following weekend, January 31st through Sunday, February 2nd, My Hero Con here in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> we are working on seeing if we can do a podcast show there. I'm sure we'll be able to, but we're working out the details yeah. right now. Um, so stay tuned and we'll give you more information on that. And then in March, <laughs> in March, get ready UK. Yeah. We're coming to Liverpool. Liverpool. And uh, we'll be in at Liverpool Comic Con March 6th through 8th. Again, yes. we're not sure about a show. We're working on it. But f- for sure, come see us. This is yeah. my first convention ever in England. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm excited about I, it. It's my first my first time um, uh, in England. It was my first time in Liverpool. I've never been to Liverpool before. Yeah. Um, I hear it's a really fun town. I've only ever been in the airport in England on my way to Ireland. <laughs> That's it. Or, yeah. or Italy. I, I've, it. uh, yeah, I've been to Ireland more often than, than England in my professional career. But Me I spent too. a lot of yeah. time in England as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Never but actually. But never been. Liverpool. So I'm excited. Yeah. It'll be fun. It's, oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. It's a good crew of people, too. Because Brandon's yeah. going. Yeah. Brandon's going. And Monica's going. Monica's going to go. So it's it'll be, be really fun. Awesome. It'll be really fun. So come yeah. see us. Uh, let's see. What else? Do we have anything else? Submissions. Yeah. Give us, keep giving yeah, us your giving submissions. Us we had a drop off over the holidays. So, well, it's understandable. It holidays. Yeah, holidays. So, tough. give us your, submit your stories, your creepy stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have a particular creepypasta that you love that you want us to read, submit, let us know and maybe we'll read that for an opening if, story. Here's, here's an idea. If you're a hairdresser or know someone who is, Tell us a creepy story associated with that because I, it suddenly Ooh. occurred to me. I'm like, hairdressers yes. must get a lot of good fucking stories from clients. Like, 
like uh, Geller did from yeah. from the King. Because yeah. I mean, like that's an interesting relationship. It's, just, it's a relationship that facilitates conversation. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. of the, the nature of it, and I'm just like just kind of like nurses and doctors. I wonder if hairdressers have some really that's good stories good from people. And also military so, bases. Yeah, and so military bases. So yeah, that's what just yeah. Thing. There's your assignment. There's your Do assignment, it. ghouls. Find it. Um, yeah, so get definitely send us your stories. Mm-hmm. Um, ghoulintentions.com. We have links to our Twitter and our Instagram. Um, we're not active on the Facebook. We're probably going to end the Facebook just and just do, do Instagram and, like and Twitter. It. Yeah, it's just hard to keep up with. It's hard to keep up with, and it's like so many social media outlets. I'm like, I'll oh, just pick one or two, and that's, yeah, that's, and that's all it. I can do because I don't yeah. have the energy. I just right. don't. I'm too, I'm too old. I'm too much of a boomer. That's right. That's right. I'm not, but I am. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not, in fact, but I am in spirit. About certain things, we'll say. Yeah, when it comes Um, to like social media, I'm so, I'm a unicorn. (laughs) An angry unicorn. Angry, the last unicorn, really. He's very bitter about it. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Come see us at these appearances if you can. Um, We'll have more announcements, of course, throughout the year. Uh, If you want us at a particular convention, let that convention know. And remember, it's it's okay okay to to sleep sleep with with the lights lights on. on.